2: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen, and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
3: I'm Jesse Bayless.
2: And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Galaxy of Terror. Released October 1st, 1981, it was written by Mark Siegler and Bruce D. Clark, based on an outline by William Stout, directed by Bruce D. Clark, and released by United Artists. Roger Corman had already ripped off Lucas's Star Wars last season with Battle Beyond the Stars, and now it was time to use the same creative team, including James Cameron again, to rip off Ridley Scott's Alien. And of course, Cameron was so successful that he landed the job directing Alien's first canon sequel five years later.
3: This was supposed to be a ripoff of Alien?
2: <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> it felt more like a ripoff of Aliens. <laughs> yeah, actually. Uh... This film was shot mostly on a Venice, California lumberyard with the planet (laughs) exteriors being shot in a soon-to-be-demolished Beacons storage facility. Do you guys recall the last time we shot in the soon-to-be-demolished Beacons storage facility? Was that Blood Beach? No, but Beacons gets a shout-out in the dialogue.
3: I know. I have no idea.
2: First Monday in October. Mm. The building where Justice Loomis finds the death certificate of a Supreme Court case defendant is the Beacon's Warehouse. Uh
0: Take me to Beacon's Warehouse. What for? Just take me.
2: Galaxy of Terror's working title was Quest, named after the spacecraft carrying our protagonists, but before its release, it was retitled Planet of Horrors, and finally, Mind Warp and Infinity of Terror, which is the title that appears on almost all the marketing materials for the film. I'd like that title. After a poor showing in theaters, a new title and poster were slapped together, and Galaxy of Terror did considerably better in the box office. Probably because the poster's much cooler. On a budget of between $700,000 and $1.8 million, it brought in around $4 million in its full run. The film's core concept of a space crew being haunted by their greatest fears will show up again famously in 1997's Event Horizon. Supposedly Mark Hamill was sought for a role, but I can't imagine what he would have been busy with at the time. Feel like that's one of those things that Carmen's just like we're talking to uh Mark Hamill. We really yeah. want Mark Hamill for the uh Cabron character in our space rape movie. I mean uh legitimate <laughs> film.
3: I think Event Horizon did it a lot better. You think? I do. that's yeah, possible. It's
2: possible. It's possible, yeah, it's possible I that's mean, better.
3: I appreciate that this might be, you know, influencing that, but I really like Event Horizon. Oh, no, yeah, <laughs> Event Horizon's
2: great. The film opens on a desolate planet and lasers blast the title onto the screen. The camera pans across the wreckage of a crashed ship on a foggy surface. We cut inside part of the downed craft and a man snaps up into frame. He's running through corridors to escape something and blasts a door with a laser gun. He encounters several bodies with brain parts exposed. Through a window and a door, we see him thrown across a room and he crashes against a wall several times before we dissolve to a shot of the planet Xerxes from space.
0: Xerxes, a small world on the fringes of occupied space. I am Mitri, the interpreter of the signs, the oracle of the game. I play at the bidding of the all-powerful one, planet master of Xerxes.
2: She's sitting across a tabletop arcade from a man with a glowing red shape in place of a head she calls him the planet master and she does his bidding we're withholding the reveal of who this master is played by later in the film by obscuring his face with this glowing light but once you know who it is you can recognize the head shape at the beginning so they clearly had the actor play this part for the whole film and then paint it over him
1: uh it wasn't the head shape for me it was his voice yeah he's he's got a very particular mannerism in his voice and speaking
2: there is a filter on it but it's just deepening it slightly
1: yeah uh, and so when I didn't know, I'm gonna do spoiler free here, when I didn't know who this character was, yeah, um, I just was like, look, oh well, there's the actor, so that's who yep. this character was. And I was like, oh, I guess that's not supposed to be the character.
2: Yeah. They get a communication on a video screen that they've lost contact with their ship Remus on a planet called Morganthus. The master orders underlings to prepare a ship for Morganthus, and he will travel with a crew of his own design. They are to know nothing of the previous lost crew. This is basically the same plot that I saw in a minisode review of The Killings at Outpost Zeta earlier this season. Mitri advises him against going to the planet. You would do that. Such risk.
0: It has been too long. I'm tired of waiting.
2: Death will surround you.
0: It is the only way. A terrible way.
2: But sure. We cut to an active hangar where a crew are being assembled to prepare for this mission. Mission Commander Ilvar, who we saw on Mitri's television earlier, is working on the bridge when no-nonsense Captain Trantor arrives. Her hair is either prematurely gray or dyed that way to imply age and experience. She sits down and announces 30 seconds to liftoff over the ship's intercom.
0: All crew, this is Trantor! Liftoff in 30 seconds, and mark! But Captain, no one's prepared! They've got 30 seconds to get prepared.
2: Everybody scrambles to their launch positions, and we see a young Robert England racing down the halls as Ranger. He passes Cabrin, as played by Edward Albert. Cabrin runs into Aluma, played by Aaron Moran, Joni from Happy Days, and she's excited to see him. Another grumpy dude is less excited. We also see Sid Haig and Ray Walston crash into each other at the doorway to the bridge. Ranger barely makes it to his station in time, and the co-pilot in this room, a young woman named Damia, grabs him and wraps her legs around him before launch so he isn't thrown against the wall and killed by the g-forces
3: i feel like that would not work
2: no definitely <laughs> no. not it would just tear her just
1: legs on. <laughs> yeah well it, it kind of reminds me of a scene that would play out later in um uh 2010 when uh roy scheider's preparing for this aerobraking maneuver and one of the russian cosmonauts comes in because she's just freaked out she just wants someone to like be with yeah. during this whole experience
2: didn't we see something like this also in that uh what was that spaceship oh, yeah, movie yeah, yeah. that we did it's for the, Patreon? The low budget. Yeah, the older one. Earth explodes in the beginning and they're flying to Venus. Oh, oh what yeah. What was the name of
1: that one? Oh, boy. Yeah,
2: that's totally gone. I was can, I want to say forbidden, but it's not forbidden. Can we Google it or search it?
3: I don't know. What am I searching?
2: Search for uh, movies that had uh, Casey Kasem from 1971 or two. Doomsday Machine? Doomsday Machine. There you go. Yeah, i think in doomsday machine there was a part where one of them couldn't get their seat belt to work so they had yeah. to like get out of the seat and grab the guy before the right. ship took off <laughs> damia is the chief technician and robert england is her second captain trantor asks ilvar why he's here since he doesn't typically go on missions and he tries to distract her by bringing up an accident she experienced on a ship called the Hesperus. yeah but uh, you've been on the go now for what uh, nearly 25 years since the hesperus if i'm not mistaken hesperus
0: <laughs> yes
1: everyone's forgotten
2: now i i haven't i i just brought it up <laughs> i like that she goes she goes gets an over macho grande moment every yeah.
1: time someone mentions the ship name <laughs> <laughs>
2: She tells Ilvar that if she didn't keep moving she'd have ended up an oxygen junkie back on Earth. Yeah, if I had uh, kept on the
0: move after that, I'd be an oxer in a breather bar by
2: now. The captain manipulates all the ship's hyperjump presets to send the craft to their destination as soon as possible. When we see the ship roaring through space, I swear to god they foley the ship with just a dude making mouth sounds. (laughs) It's like... That
3: sounds about right.
2: We get a sort of 2001 A Space Odyssey warp montage of colors streaming past camera, and then we're in orbit around Morganthus, which is apparently a four-minute drive from Earth. It takes a little longer to get to my local Vaughn's. Uh, I, I, I will say this. For the
1: budget of this film, these space visual effects are pretty good.
2: Yeah. No, they're not terrible. I'm sure they're from older movies. As they break into the atmosphere, their autopilot is disrupted by a signal from the surface. Trantor gives up fairly quickly on landing the ship herself. We nearly had it. There's nothing I can do.
0: <laughs>
2: Luckily, she's coaxed back from this apparent suicide attempt to make a minor thruster adjustment at the last second and land safely—or <laughs> relatively safely.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's like Paul Rudd in "Went on American Summer." Uh, I guess I'll do it.
2: Fine, we won't die. <laughs> One of the younger crewmen is panicking in the mess hall and on the verge of throwing up. The commander informs the crew that they should be able to breathe this planet's atmosphere safely. Everybody steps out of the craft to form an away party, and they're all dressed in costumes that Roger Corman either bought or stole from the offices of the recently canceled Battlestar Galactica. With their black gloves and backpacks, they also resemble Ghostbuster jumpsuits. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if the imagery comes from here or possibly from Battlestar Galactica.
3: This is the most impractical backpack setup, yes. though, because like they're just little tiny like hangers that go over the yeah, shoulder. Yeah, it's not even a strap yeah. that it's, connects around. It doesn't around. connect to anything at the bottom. I'm just like, if you just wiggle your shoulders a little bit, like you're, you know, actively moving, right. this thing's going to fall it off. It would
2: be so uncomfortable <laughs> in the meantime, though. Cabron asks aluma if she senses anything outside but she doesn't apparently she's a sort of psychic but this never really comes in handy because it never does in these movies there's always yeah. the betazoid character that just tells you what you already knew mm-hmm.
1: yeah uh freaking um kate blanchett in crystal skull where she's yeah. supposed to be a psychic but never does anything. i opened a door
2: once or did i i don't know yeah. it sparked a little bit the hurt guy who was unhappy to see Cabran is named Balon, and he dismisses her abilities. If there's anything to be found, Cabran, I'll find it myself.
0: Balon, I'm size sensitive. The subtle energies do exist. They even pay me to sense them, alright?
2: They move inside the previous crashed ship, Remus, to investigate. A few steps into the ship, the corpse of one of its deceased passengers swings down from the ceiling. Its face is horribly mangled, and Sid Haig's character throws a crystal ninja star at it. <laughs> like, thanks, that's gonna fix it. But worse than that,
1: after after he does that, they just vaporize yeah, it. Yeah,
2: they set it on fire immediately.
1: <laughs> it was like I was like, when that happened, where they didn't even like there was no hesitation or no, oh, should we get the body down? Or like, like yeah. just like nope, instant vaporization. Like this is standard procedure. But in mm. the
2: movie Alien, if they'd been doing this the whole time, things would have gone better. Yeah. So
1: it makes sense. Um but when that happened, I was just like
2: Okay. Yeah. All
3: right. All right. But like, it, it felt a little weird to me because I don't feel like they established the fact that they thought anything was wrong here right. in particular. Like, I thought that they were literally looking for people that survived. Right. Whatever that is has what they're here for. And yet, when they find a dead one, they just burn it assuming something terrible has happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, by the looks of it, something terrible has happened, <laughs> Yeah. but I mean, you don't know what it is, so right. why are you burning him?
2: <laughs> Cause, the weak stomached crewman, starts throwing up on the floor. Haig, whose character we learn here is named Q-Hod takes his crystal back and Balon cremates the body instantly. Balon is in command and pairs himself with his ex-girlfriend and her new crush Cabrin with q He forces Cause to explore main control alone. <laughs> Cameron offers to go Why? with cause, but Balon refuses the suggestion. He's like, no, fuck that guy. He's throwing up all over the place. <laughs> he can do things alone. He's going to cause a sh- electrical short and something any minute. He's <laughs> going to cause <laughs> an electrical I, short. I make,
1: I make that joke later. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's causing all kinds of problems.
1: <laughs> no, because they said that we don't know the cause of death. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh my God, aww. that's the
2: sequel with this guy. Cause comes back as a monster and he's called the cause of death. That's what they should have called the birds. (laughs) 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 The cause of death you get it, Jess? You're I get not it. I'm not acknowledging you're you. You're not laughing. <laughs> I'm
3: not acknowledging <laughs> The you.
2: hallways of this spaceship are constructed of what look like milk crates for the ceiling and reportedly McDonald's styrofoam containers were used for the walls.
3: I actually really like the sets of yeah. this movie. no,
2: they look great, actually.
3: <laughs> I, I thought it was surprising. Like, I, it's actually a little bit higher budget than I was expecting. Well, I mean, 700000 I thought it was incredibly cheaply made. Yeah, uh, but
2: these corridors are have been reused in multiple films. Oh, uh,
3: okay, so they weren't totally a I don't think
2: they were totally original okay, and they were also sense. at the same time being used on other movies. Okay th- that, that makes hours. a lot more yeah. sense
3: I was just like the fact that there's like a million hallways in this movie. I
2: think there's like six hallways and they just they just redress them redress a little, them a little okay, bit. Okay yeah. fair enough. cause traveling alone is startled by a frayed electrical wire that swings down from the ceiling with the sound of a whip Cabrin and Qhod find another dead body at the controls and Qhod gives a nod of approval for Cabrin to incinerate this corpse with another shot Kaz sees what looks like the shadow of a centipede on a wall, and when he moves around a corner, he finds the briefest glimpse of a stop-motion animated monster sliding around in the shadows. Is this the only stop-motion shot in the whole movie? Um, I mean, some of the creature growing
1: may have been stop-motion. Oh, maybe.
2: Yeah. Kaz runs full speed away and crashes into Balon with a luma. As they turn to leave, Kaz hangs back when he hears something. Suddenly, he's wrapped in antennae, crustacean limbs, and clawed paws, which tear away his scalp, and we cut to Cabrin and Ray Walston's character, Cor, walking the halls of the ship. For some reason, back on board the ship, the chief technician and her second are performing cause's autopsy. It's like, you guys are technicians and the ship doctors? We get two paychecks this way. <laughs> Pretty cool. You guys are the Geordies and the Crushers.
1: But like, I thought for sure like there was going to be a scene of them going, Where's Kaz? It's like, no, we just cut to he's dead and we we can't figure out why.
2: We're checking his brains. Yep, yep, brains are bad. He got smashed. (laughs) Balon suggests leaving immediately, but Ilvar says there are four crew members unaccounted for and they're here to collect survivors. They scan the surface of the planet for life and when they reach a specific direction labeled 419, they get a signal so strong it overloads their equipment. They decide to investigate and find an enormous pyramid. Balon scans the structure with a scope and determines that there is a well in the center, and they could climb down it to investigate. Halfway up the pyramid, Commander Ilvar complains that he's having difficulty because he's too old for this journey. Damia insists he can do it. You're not old, Commander. No, when I'm looking at you, I'm not. Uh, That's not what I meant. Just keep trying, please. I don't want to carry you.
1: Yeah, I was trying to be nice, and now you're getting to be
2: weird. He turns and makes it two or three steps up the mountain before losing his grip and sliding back down to her. I think I need mouth to mouth. Back at the mouth of the pyramid's well, Ilvar recites a bit of a poem. Doubt.
0: His brother demon to despair. The demon's tale doubt withers those who dare not dare.
2: Yeah, so anyway, uh, (laughs) which one of us is going to go down first? Commander Ilvar fires a piton into the wall before descending into the hole. The others try to convince him that there are more qualified people to make this attempt, but he's trying to make a self-sacrifice, like he knows he's going to die in this thing. Predictably, the piton comes loose almost immediately. Cabrin catches the rope in time, but they continue lowering him into the tunnel anyway. Suddenly, weird tentacle leeches are gripping the commander from every direction. He cuts a few with a knife before succumbing to several more.
1: Uh, the, The sound effects on um, these creatures the slurping yeah it's like <laughs> oh boy and they just yeah. keep reusing it over and over again
2: yeah i just see like a cartoon dog licking him that's what it looks yeah. like to me in my brain or 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 squeezing
1: a ketchup bottle
2: yeah
0: <laughs>
2: after hearing him scream they look down into the hole and see the commander has disappeared completely Trantor and Walston the cook are hanging out in the mess hall back on the second ship, the Quest, and they invite Ranger to join them. Trantor shares with the cook a seemingly nonsensical quote.
0: You know what they say, cook. The master sends meat, but the devil sends cooks. Did the master send you to keep an eye on this mission?
2: Is that a quote from something, or is she just making up nonsense? Yeah. What does that mean? I
3: don't know. Let me Google it.
2: The master sends meat, but the devil sends cooks.
1: It's one of those sayings that you could probably uh, come up with something really interesting. Like, is it a thing?
3: It is a thing. Apparently, it's a quote according to the internet, a common proverb <laughs> that I've never heard. Uh, yeah, that God may send a man good meat, but the devil may send an evil cook to destroy it.
2: Ah, so eat raw meat, folks. Don't trust cooks. Before the cook can respond, Ranger arrives to take a seat with them at the table. Trantor finishes some story we didn't hear the beginning of, about a mission in her past, and Ranger asks if it's about the Hesperus. So apparently, contrary to Trantor's claims, literally everyone remembers the Hesperus. Yeah. Trantor goes into another fugue state. <laughs> Is
0: this Hesperus? No, it's not Hesperus. Hesperus was...
1: i'm ready <laughs> they just kept picturing the airplanes yeah flying you'll, around have to striker's head. <laughs> you'll have to
2: decide yeah.
3: no we never find out what they are from this right do we i, I mean, think like, it's
2: supposed to be the other crew members because she supposedly came back alone but the implication is that oh i thought she it was like whatever somewhere. was
3: attacking them like i don't I, like i'm super unclear about what happened Yeah, we, the we don't
2: explain it okay <laughs> We cut back to the ridge that leads up the side of the pyramid, and it looks not unlike a human spine, a clear reference to H.R. Giger's production design on Ridley Scott's Alien. q and Aluma reach the top where Balon is waiting, and he nearly shoots them when they startle him. There's a smoldering human shape on the ground. Apparently Balon has just roasted another corpse from the previous crew. What was that? One of the others.
0: How?
2: Who knows, it looked like his face had been torn off.
0: Balon, we're trying to figure this out, you can't just fry off evidence.
2: We've been doing that the whole time. Yeah. Nearby, a door starts to slide open, and Q-Hod jams it close with two of his crystal ninja stars. At the same time, Cabrin and Damia arrive, and Damia mentions the weird worm creatures that killed the commander.
0: I hate worms.
2: Q-Hod's crystals shatter into thousands of pieces, and the door slides open. Balon fires a laser rifle inside preemptively. q cries silently over his shattered crystals. Poor guy. Balon hands q a blaster to guard the door while the rest of them move deeper inside. q seems reluctant to use a gun, not unlike his co-star Richard Dean Anderson in multiple MacGyver episodes in which Sid Haig makes an appearance. In Rejecting the Gun, Haig delivers his only line of the film. I live and I die by the crystals. Eventually he takes the weapon anyway. Apparently the character had many more lines in the script, but Sid Haig suggested his character be mute. And when Corman asked why he couldn't just read the lines, he supposedly said, Have you read this script? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to be mute, please.
3: Um, But, like, yeah, I mean, it it is more telling, or not telling. I guess it's more meaningful and foreboding that this is his only line. Yeah.
2: Inside the caves, Balon gets really physical with both girls and demands everyone follow him. Damia offers to wait with Hod to avoid exploring. Q-Hod has dropped the blaster on the ground and is having a breakdown trying to pick it back up. He notices a large set of doors are closing behind him, and he tries to hold them open for a while before heading back outside and letting them close. His crystal ninja stars reincorporate into their original shapes, but when he tries to pick one up, a blade breaks off and jams itself into his wrist and then climbs up his forearm under the skin. To keep it from entering his torso, Q-Hod punches his arm off with his other (laughs) arm. But then the disembodied arm comes back to life on the ground and hurls the other crystal into his chest. Now this part reminded me of, uh, did you ever see that, uh, the Cloverfield Paradox?
1: Uh, no, I
2: actually never did see that. Because there's one part where Chris O'Dowd's arm gets stuck in a wall and then they find it later and it's alive, just severed from its, uh. the rest of his body, but it can still move. Um, so very similar imagery there. Back in the mess hall, Ranger finds the cook reading a book and is surprised to see it. Court the cook, offers to share it, and Ranger backs away terrified. Like, ugh, no, books, thank you.
1: Well, I, I thought it was more like, like, it's like, oh, you shouldn't really have that kind of thing.
2: Oh, like he'd get in trouble for it? Yeah. Maybe. Or maybe he's just like me, where he's like, ugh, no, no, thank you, no books.
1: <laughs> you're, you're like one of the biggest readers that I know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a listener. I don't read them. I'm not going to touch that, thank you. I have people to do that.
3: Don't be an ableist. Listening's just as just as valid as reading.
2: Right outside the cave, Damia finds q corpse on the ground and incinerates it without checking for signs of life. She almost trips over his severed and maggot-infested arm, but they look more like mealworms than maggots to me. But the all the production notes I could find referred to them as, as maggots.
3: So I know that probably at this point in the movie, we don't know that they're being killed by their fears and they, that they aren't controlling them, but... Knowing that now and looking at this death, he wants to, quote unquote, live and die by the crystal. So I think dying by the crystal is not his greatest fear. Wouldn't dying by something that's not the crystal be his greatest fear?
2: I think you can want to live and die by the crystals and still fear dying by them.
3: I don't know. Like, I feel like that's the kind of death he would have wanted.
2: Or maybe the fear
1: would be that they would be used against him you'd be used against him or that they would turn on him like that, that they would turn him on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that, yeah. Yeah. I guess like, like more so that he, maybe like there was like a worthiness. Like,
2: yeah. I, maybe when he says I live and die by the crystals, he means like these crystals are here to protect me and they will prevent me from dying. But like, if I die, it's because they failed me, not because they literally turned on me.
1: Yeah. But, But, but I agree. I, the, most of the fear, Induced deaths don't really seem like it's like oh this is what you were afraid of. But we had the
2: same problem with phobia last season where it was just like was that their fear? That didn't seem like that was their fear. And then she just Mm -hmm. drown. (laughs) She was she was an agoraphobic and he drown her in a bathtub. That's not those aren't related. Yeah. The maggots on this arm are wiggling because James Cameron literally electrocuted them on a metal plate when Corman complained that they weren't moving enough.
3: This is a problem. So we tried this um, when... (laughs) What?
2: (laughs) Back up what? She was trying to electrocute maggots. No,
3: no, no. So, okay. So we were putting together a haunted house room, or this was in the, the... Technically, this was one of the basement mazes where was trying to put together an oh, area that was worms, right? scary and we had like this severed head we dug a hole out and put some plexiglass sheets so you could see the head severed like mm-hmm. under the ground and cover it up and we wanted to put maggots on it but they they don't wiggle on their own no and, and it was cold and they just don't move and so it's just like you can't... So it just looks
2: like you put it in rice like oh i dropped my yeah, head in some water
3: exactly i don't know <laughs> i don't know how they get the worms to wiggle on like movie sets and stuff well
2: james cameron electrocuted them and that seemed to work at least temporarily but he had to get tiny little sponges for each of their heads (laughs) (laughs) thomas edison would be so proud yeah tesla's just weeping in the corner (laughs) damia burns the arm too but unfortunately leaves one of the maggots alive to suddenly grow very large in size she steps out to the edge of a cliff to call back to the quest and as the worm continues to grow it gets slimier no one responds to damia's calls When it stops at full size, the mealworm looks more like a tardigrade and it corners Damia against the cave doors. She screams in terror as the monster eats all of her clothes off (laughs) and then I have to give a bit of a trigger warning here Yeah, because uh, we're about to discuss some pretty graphic sexual assault so get ready for that. Uh, He proceeds to rape her on the floor outside the cave. The scene as written called for simple toplessness from the actress Taffy O'Connell who was supposed to be, her top was supposed to be torn off and then she was supposed to be eaten by this worm, but Corman had promised investors a love scene featuring the actress, so he tried to fulfill the requirement by rewriting this scene. Director Clark was disgusted enough to refuse to direct it, so Corman stepped in to direct this sequence himself, and despite promising O'Connell that he would utilize a double for all the nudity, he intentionally positioned the camera in such a way that her breasts would remain clearly in frame throughout the entire scene. A double was employed for more of the full-body inserts, and as graphic as the scene was, it was originally much worse, with more pronounced humping motions and an implied death by orgasm from the actress. But the MPAA dropped an X rating on the film, and these pieces were not only cut, but destroyed with fire by the editorial team, who didn't trust Corman not to work them back into the cut somehow down the line. Wow. Yeah. And
3: tr- I, yeah, yeah, I believe They literally that.
2: used the same backpack torches and <laughs> lit them on fire.
3: I don't understand in what world he thought investors would be like, yeah, okay, this does this does. It the worked.
2: He didn't get sued for not having the love scene with that actress like he promised. Wow. Parts of this scene show up again during a montage of Corman's work under the opening titles of Jim Wynorski's Not of This Earth for some reason. I'm not clear why footage from other movies is used in that one. When the monster has his petite mort, she has a gross mort. Back on the quest, Cor- Sorry, what? A petite mort is a French term referring to an orgasm, but it translates to a little death, and then a gross mort is a big death because she dies. (sighs) Back on the quest, Cor and Ranger are in the bridge, and some space-only weapons are being fired within the planet's atmosphere, which is doing damage to the ship. Kor knocks Ranger out suddenly, and then goes to visit Trantor in her captain cave. She's firing the ship's guns at enemy crafts in space, when Core appears and reveals himself to be a spy.
0: I am Eerman, Weapons Systems Coordinator on the Romulus. Do you remember? Cook, huh? A spy. You spy for them, Cook. You were just a kid. But you were the hero that day, Trantor. You were magnificent. You saved my life. You lie. I was the only one. The
2: only And that's all we'll get of the Hesperus. That solves all of our questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When she turns to look back at the monitor, all the enemy spacecraft have disappeared, and Kor tells her it was a hallucination, and she should stop firing these weapons planet-side. The enemy ship reappears on the screen, and she resumes firing, not believing Kor's theory. She grabs a big gun off the wall and wanders away. Ranger stops by to tell Cor he just got knocked out by somebody. And of course, Cor says, he doesn't know who did it. He's like, <laughs> oh, cool story, bro. <laughs> <laughs> they flip through various security monitors to locate Captain Trantor. And somehow, when she opens the main hatch to head outside, the ship loses life support pressure and she's immediately engulfed in flames, mm-hmm. despite the fact that the entire crew have wandered the landscapes of this planet unhelmeted for the entire film. Ranger races toward where he saw this happen on screen, and just as he gets there, Trantor opens the doors in front of him with her last ounce of strength and falls forward skinless into the room as he screams. The rest of the team on the pyramid find the fully nude Damia covered in slime outside the cave. Again, instead of checking for signs of life, Balon incinerates the woman, which might have been the right move either way in case she was carrying a giant mealworm fetus.
3: Oh, God.
2: The crew reconvene in the mess hall, if they decide to return to the pyramid, the cook offers his assistance. In the next shot, all five remaining crew members are scaling the structure again. Aluma senses something with her abilities. <laughs> Ranger tries... To... <laughs> and that's it. That's it. I sensed something. Anyway, you all did too. Ranger tries to tell Cabran that he doesn't trust Core when Core interrupts them. They reach a very tall chamber that seems to tunnel vertically directly down the center of the pyramid. Stock wind sound effects indicate a breeze moving down the tunnel. Aluma doesn't want to go another step further.
0: Aren't you afraid? Too scared.
2: Balon is startled by a sound and starts firing his laser rifle randomly. He seems like he's losing it. For some reason, they decide the proper course of action is to slide down these tubes deeper into the planet core for all they know they're lava tubes and they're just going to die at the bottom.
1: Yeah, like, that's such a terrifying f- that's a fear yeah like going down a slide
2: <laughs> yeah. to a potential just bottom and it stops
1: or or not even bottom it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter and oh yeah you're just stuck
2: isn't that like a torture device in a uh, tank girl yeah where they put them down the tube they get smaller and smaller yeah uh
1: also when they first encounter this room it's just a big anus yep it- it's just a big anus in the wall <laughs>
2: It's just a big anus, is I think what you're trying to say.
1: And and before that
2: In exactly as many words.
1: All the hallways are these like
2: thick veiny walled yeah. halls. With little polyps coming yeah. out at you. <laughs>
1: I was just like, Are we in a colon? Yeah. <laughs> I was I was like, I get you're trying to be like creepy and like geekery, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I was just like, This is this is weird. I feel like I'm watching season three of the boys
2: yeah the only way it would be worse is if the uh if the sound of the breeze actually just sounded like a muted fart (laughs) (laughs) blowing past them upward they just climbed into a giant monster's ass that's just sleeping on the landscape instead everyone slides out onto the same platform and they follow an elevated walkway with no railing toward a wall of lights the floor of the room looks hundreds of feet below them if there even is one as they move along the walkway, we see claws reaching up over the side and grasping at Ranger's legs, knocking him over.
1: Now, whose fear is this?
2: I don't is... know, because he doesn't even see the claws. Yeah, and it's and we'll come to realize that that's not his fear. Right. Ranger blames Balon for the fall, not having seen the creature, and Balon shouts at him to shut up. Kor finds a switch he can use to open some nearby doors. When the door closes completely with Balon on the outside, a triangle becomes visible in the ceiling. Suddenly, the lights on one wall all go out and the only illumination remaining is in the headlights on their backpacks, which are actually pretty cool. They're yeah, like, yeah. Uh, the lights come up over the top.
1: But I imagine that there's a full car battery in each of those backpacks yeah, they're that they're heavy. having to
2: hoist them around. Yeah. Suddenly, Balon is face-to-face with another demon creature, but just when we expect it to eat him, it fades away. Unnecessarily, though, because as soon as the doors slide open again, the creature is there and attacks him before throwing him off the edge into the abyss below. Which I guess was his fear. The end. He's gone. I thought he was going to be around much longer and be more of an antagonist. Ranger blames Korb for Balon's death, but somehow they've lost track of Cook again. They continue moving down the walkway, but Ranger spots something and pulls out his blaster. He admits to Cabron and Aluma that he might be seeing things. He seems to conclude that Cabron is the master, and threatens to shoot him until Aluma shouts some sense into him. Aluma steps through the triangle they unlocked by closing the door earlier, and it seals itself shut behind her. As each person steps through the triangle from one side, they are sent to a different room than their friends. Ranger is attacked from behind in his room, and when he spins around to face off against the person, it's another ranger. We have two Robert Englands in the shot. Freddy versus Freddy. <laughs> I put a, a doppel ranger. Ah, mm-hmm. no. Oh, because it's just one letter changed. Cabernet and Aluma eventually find each other, but they're on opposite sides of a soundproof window. Ranger tries unloading his blaster into his doppelganger, but it has no effect. The clone takes out a knife and slashes open Ranger's wrist with it. Aluma, that's, that's not fair. Yeah, how come my stuff goes through you and you can cut me?
1: Ah, uh, you know why? Because the slow blade penetrates the shield.
2: Oh, Is that what they say? It. That's a. That's a dune reference i thought it was an old gunkin
1: proverb (laughs) 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 you know that that's as slow (laughs) as a blade
0: i'm not doing this no that was perfect that's so offensive (laughs) to (laughs) gungans
1: i apologize to all our (laughs) gunkin they're all dead or or if you watch george lucas gunga because he doesn't know the name of the own thing that he wrote (laughs) (laughs) is that
2: true yeah he says the own name wrong yeah interesting i mean i can't blame him i wouldn't watch it any more than i had to (laughs) Aluma finds a new glowing tunnel and reluctantly heads inside. Ranger hits his clone with a few more blasts, which seem to have more effect, but he still doesn't die.
0: Blood, no guts. Can't be real. <laughs> i myself.
2: He speaks the realization out loud, and his clone fades away. So he succeeded. He defeated his his fear. fear. So he is the new master. Anyway, let's not come back to that. Did he
3: defeat his fear or did he he just acknowledge the existence of his fear? Or
2: what I tend to believe, which is that what we just saw was the clone realizing that the original ranger wasn't real. And he dissolved. Wait, so his fear was like, Wait, I'm not real? (laughs) And then he disappeared. Exactly. So we just lost track of which ranger was which. As Illuma crosses through the tunnel, she reaches a portion wrapped in vines, which suddenly disconnect from the walls and wrap around her. They grip tighter and tighter like a boa constrictor, eventually breaking her bones, and her ribs come punching through her chest. And it looks fucking awesome. Yeah. More vines wrap around her head and her mouth and tighten until she completely explodes.
1: Yeah, her head pops like someone like with a watermelon between their thighs. Yeah, what?
2: That's so hot. Cabrera eventually finds a walking path to. You never done that with a watermelon? You ever seen those videos?
1: Like people like they're just like that's the
2: demonstration. Yeah, they keep of their them leg in leg that, muscles, the they, room in the back <coughs> of the video store behind the curtain. <laughs> paint <laughs> a, they paint a the guy's head like a watermelon. <laughs> where, where, do you, where
1: do you guys keep the watermelon? <laughs> oh, this guy again, <laughs> sir. This is a Wendy's. I don't know if I want to go seedless
2: or not seedless. What is happening in this conversation? I don't know. Cabrin eventually finds the walking path to the tunnel she entered and notices her corpse deep inside. It's down to him, Ranger, and Kor now. Cabrin and Ranger take a seat at the base of a tall stairway to what looks like a throne. They suddenly notice Kor standing at the top. Cabrin cautiously ascends the staircase, and the steps appear before him one at a time as he goes. For whatever reason, Ranger doesn't follow him on this part of the journey. He doesn't wait for one of the stairs to appear, and steps through the space it would have occupied if he'd been more patient, and nearly falls. The stairs begin appearing again, and he makes it all the way to the top to follow Kor. He finds the man sitting cross-legged in the center of a room. When Cabrin walks around him to see his face, it becomes the glowing red orb again, and finally, he understands that Kor is the master. And you watched while we died,
0: and you said nothing.
2: He takes out his blaster and fires at Kor. <laughs> Predictably, it has no effect. Cabron promises to find something more effective. The master tells Cabron that he has already passed what is essentially a test of his abilities.
0: This pyramid is an ancient boy. A brilliant initiatory toy for the children of a vanished race to see their deepest fears and learn to control them. And how can you know this? This is where I became master.
2: The lights all go red, and one at a time, Cabron is faced with the fears of all his teammates. Thankfully, the worm doesn't rape him this time. Yeah, it's like a boss rush. Yeah. I was expecting in this montage for him to have to fight another Cabron like what Ranger went through, but it doesn't happen. Finally, Cabran finds himself in a chamber with the heavily slimed corpses of his crewmates. He defeats most of them with karate moves, but eventually they knock him out and huddle over him on the floor. It's like, okay, I guess you lost. You're not the master because they beat you? Later, he's awoken by the voice of Aluma and freaks out when he sees her face. She's approaching him slowly and they almost kiss when she grabs him by the throat and lifts him into the air.
3: I really wanted her at this point because, like, this is supposed to be his greatest fear, like, to just be like, I'm pregnant.
2: he's like, no! (laughs) They struggle against each other, but Cabrin reaches his blaster and incinerates her. Cabrin is magically warped back to the room in front of the master slash core. Somehow, Cabrin closes his eyes and fires a batch of lasers from his abs, which kill the master, but also transfer the red glow to Cabrin's head. It
0: is done. You wanted me to kill you, and I have. I've killed the master. No. Only an old man. You cannot kill the power that is a master. I will never do what you have done. Too late. You are the master. I can leave. Refuse. And allow your planet to plunge into chaos. That too would be the effect of your power. But you would still be master. That is
1: who you are. You are the master. He knows
2: what it means to be a master. It's from the Apple.
3: I don't understand what the hell is happening. Cabrin <laughs> pulls out his blaster
2: again and incinerates the old man, and we see a glowing silhouette that reminded me of the Without Warning poster as Core slash the former master slash Ray Walston disappears. Cabrin's face begins to glow red, and we dissolve to the exterior of the pyramid again as all the cracks light up and the credits roll. The end.
3: What is happening?
2: Cabrin's the master okay but what does that mean (laughs) here's here's my other question so core was actually just an enemy soldier during the battle of the Hesperus, and got left on this planet and became the master some time ago no because
1: i I think the implication is that he's been he's been the master for like
2: thousands and thousands of years
1: well because he was
2: he he just posing as a member of that other ship during the Hesperus battle? That's what I I,
1: I, 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 this is my interpretation, by the way. I mean, which, which is
2: all you can do is interpret. Exactly. There's no translation.
1: My interpretation is he's, he's God, quote, quote unquote, right. a God. Um, and he probably just dips around and becomes people. So he just quantum leaps for fun. Yeah, exactly. Like what else do you do with the time that you have? You can't die. So you just go around and, and hang out. I would um,
2: probably not do that <laughs> If I but, were him But you
1: might after like a thousand ten thousand years Of like god I can't sit here with this Old woman anymore and play board games Every day I gotta yeah. go do something
2: I would be like I finally have enough time To review every 80's Movie now that I can live <laughs> thousands of years <laughs> uh, But would,
3: would you or would you Still not get your notes done in time No I'd just
2: be like oh shit infinity is less Time than I realized <laughs>
1: Uh, but that was my interpretation because how he describes the the pyramid as a child's training thing, is a, and that's where he got his training. Yeah. Uh, but then, I guess my I guess my thought is that he just forgot where it was after all that time.
2: And then he was like, Morganthus, oh my god, that rings a bell. That's <laughs> where they have that giant uh, Rubik's cube that rapes you." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why are, Why are we going there? I don't want to go there if that's what it does. Anyway. That's uh that's Galaxy of Terror. Um it does have some decent production value for a uh Roger Corman movie. Uh it definitely probably looks the most expensive from what I've seen because in the past even as recently as Battle Beyond the Stars, it was very it it leaned very heavily on matte paintings. Yeah. For every set. And this one looks largely practical. We do have Uh, I think there's some matte paintings in that, in that opening hanger when they're getting ready for the first launch. Mm -hmm. But after that, most of it looks like real sets that, and maybe some exteriors on the planet.
1: And, and, and like I said, like even the launch bay when they're like, it was like, I was like, okay, you know, like it, 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 it's, it's clearly a miniature, but it it looks good. Yeah. I'm not upset with this miniature.
2: No, that's not where my problem was for sure. Um, but I did have problems. <laughs> and I, I do feel like uh, Grace Sabrisky as the Captain Trantor character is a, is a weird choice because she seems like she's supposed to be, like, this old, like, wise character who's been through this trauma. Yeah. But she also looks like she's in her early 30s with gray dyed hair. Uh,
1: but, you know, um, yeah, because especially for the 80s, she, lo- she looks 80s, 30s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's just it's a it's a weird choice, but uh, Ray Walston's fine, obviously, and everybody yeah. else does their job. I mean, i
1: I have to say, I actually kind of had a good time watching this movie. I don't think it's a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. No, no, no. But but uh, but I it was surprising enough with with some of the stuff that happened, that and some of the. Like just some of the detail. I was just watching the sets.
2: I was like <laughs> it was I like, really like the effect of Q Hod's arm coming back to life. Yeah. And throwing things at him because I was like, You're hiding the seam well enough that it doesn't look like trash. That's yeah. neat.
1: Yeah, like it kind of reminded me of like was I think it was fingers Like, I've read reviews where they don't even mention the sets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I was like, this this movie looks good. Yeah. Like I, I, I just wish that other things were better.
2: And actually, I was impressed with the eyeline matching of the two Freddies uh-huh. when you have uh-huh. uh, the Robert England versus Robert England. like they're looking at each other and they're moving perfectly in sync with each other around each other. And I was just like, wow, their eyeline matches. This is actually pretty decent. I wonder if that was just fortuitous or if that took several takes to to manage. But I feel like if you if you take the rape scene out of this movie, if it, if it just was toplessness and then death, it would feel more like a random movie. But because, you know, I mean, Corman did the exact same thing in Humanoids from the Deep last year. Where he was like, you know what this needs? And the director's like, don't say a rape scene because I'm going to leave if you say a rape scene. And he's like, a rape scene? Let's have the humanoid rape a lady on the beach. And she's like, I quit then. And he was like, cool, I'll direct it myself. I'll bring in my own guy. And uh, we're good. And he did the exact same thing in that movie, yeah. which he also produced. And it's also a standout, awkward scene, but it also is, is part of like, helped the word of mouth a lot um, because people were like, oh, is this the movie where the giant worm rapes the lady? And then they went and saw it because they heard that that happens in the movie. So it's a double-edged sword because it should come out in terms of filmmaking, but it's also the, the only thing that the film has to market itself.
3: Yeah, I, I struggled to watch this movie a little bit because I was in an On airport. An <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, before you left, I was like, "Be careful where you watch Galaxy of Terror because you're going to have to explain some water bear porn to I people." Liter- <laughs>
3: <laughs> I literally set myself up in like a little corner and took my coat and like put it over my head and put my computer on underneath the coat so yeah. that i could watch it in this little cave where nobody could see oh over my, my shoulder
1: they knew what you were doing it was like but i but i didn't put the audio to my no, headphones. No, no, there was no headphones <laughs> <so. Yeah. laughs>
2: and i actually i had one of those like assistive programs that just describes the scene out loud <laughs> so it was just like now the giant creature is on top of the woman, and her clothes have completely vanished. <laughs> it's like the audio version of the subtitles. Sl-
1: the slime is everywhere. Oh my
2: goodness! Yeah, yeah. what do we think? Uh, thumbs
1: up on this? Uh, I'm gonna give it a thumbs down. But I, if you like Roger Corman's schlock, it's probably for you.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd recommend it to anyone. Um, I don't really understand most of it so i'm gonna give it a thumbs down
2: i don't know what i'm gonna do (laughs) um i guess i give it a thumbs down because there's nothing really special here it's it's just it's just dirty and uh there's there's nothing standout impressive
3: there's there's better monster rape scenes in, in this world. Yeah. You don't need this one. Yeah.
2: Sorry. I would say this is skippable. It's it's not as good as humanoids. Humanoids has some really terrific stuff in it. Um and then uh what are we thinking, uh letterboxed?
3: I have it at eighty seven. It is below bloody birthday and above only when I laugh.
1: All right. <laughs> nice. That's fair. <laughs> Uh, I have it at seventy five, uh which puts it below Kill and Kill Again, but above uh Charlie Chan and the Dragon Queen.
2: I have it right between you guys actually. I have it in eighty one, which puts it under Tim, but above under the rainbow.
3: It's so it's so weird to try to think of any of these movies in the same context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I agreed with both of the what you said it's above and below. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's definitely worse than that and better than that.
1: Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, like I said, like I, I didn't hate watching this movie and so it's just like well i don't want to like throw it away i i would probably yeah. watch it again if someone said hey you ever seen galaxy of Terror? I Says i have yeah. you have never seen it let's watch it
3: yeah it's all right it's it's not great
2: yeah i i just think if you're if you're trying to go through everything that's really important for the decade that this would not qualify oh yeah uh that there's more important stuff to see than this just you can you can cover the blanks in your head by just saying Roger Corman version of Alien, but with a really uncomfortable rape scene. And then you're like, I've seen it already. I've literally seen the whole movie.
1: Well, what's fun about where I have this is it's below Kill and Kill again, but then just one step higher is
2: Continental Divide. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's weird. Our writer-director here was Bruce D. Clark. He previously directed Fred Williamson vehicle Hammer, and this was his final writing or directing credit probably as a result of disagreements on set the writer here was mark siegler he had previously written naked angels and ski bum which were earlier low budget directorial efforts of bruce clark's the outline came from william stout who has creature design credits on red sonja leviathan predator 2 men in black and the mist reboot oh man he was also the production designer on the return of the living dead and masters of the universe oh so
1: so he's got some good stuff yeah
2: but but uh, I don't know what outline even means in terms mm. of that. But because but, uh, yeah. uh, Leviathan, Leviathan great. You guys yeah. know Leviathan? Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, the music came from Barry Schrader. Uh, not much else. Yeah. Leviathan is, is part of that like underwater. Yeah. Deep group. Star- of yeah. Deep Star Six. The and, Abyss. And, yeah. Cinematographer was Jacques Haitken. We've seen his work previously on the private eyes. Later. He DPs the house where evil dwells nightmare on Elm streets. One and two cherry 2000 shocker maniac cop three. Scanner Cop 2 and Wishmaster and he also worked camera crew on Fast 8 Kong Skull Island and Venom the, uh, the Venom from the Marvel character right not the 1983 Venom uncredited cinematography from Austin McKinney who is probably a friend of Cameron's based on visual effects credits for Battle Beyond the Stars and Escape from New York for which uh, I think we said James Cameron did some matte paintings. Later, he provides effects for Slapstick of Another Kind, Jaws 3D, The Terminator, and Syngenor, which is the sequel to Scared to Death or the remake of Scared to Death with the same monster design, but they named the movie after the monster instead of just the phrase Scared to Death for no reason. Editor Larry Block also cut death Sport, Avalanche, Rock and Roll High School. We've seen his work on Alligator, and he's back next week to edit Smokey Bites the Dust, He also cut Joysticks, Breaking, Rambo First Blood Part 2, Critters, Bill and Ted, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, The Mighty Ducks, The Santa Claus, Bring It On, 17 episodes of the Sarah Silverman program, and a couple community episodes. So, busy guy. Uh, Another editor credit here for RJ Kaiser. He has mostly ADR editor credits on titles like Arachnophobia, Kindergarten Cop, My Girl, The Lion King, Street Fighter, X-Files. Uh, that's both X-Files movies, I think. Uh, X-Men 1 and 2, Inception, Interstellar, Dark Knight Rises, and most recently, Bad Boys for Life. The third editor credit is for Barry Zetlin, who also cut Break Into Electric Boogaloo, Ghoulies 2, Friday the 13th, 7, and Children of the Corn 2. Edward Albert played Cabrin. Allegedly, Keith Carradine was considered for the part. Hmm. He is the son of Green Acres' Eddie Albert. We saw him last as Brian in When Time Ran Out. He might be best known for playing the father of the Red Ranger and the main antagonist of the Power Rangers Time Force Rangers series. Aaron Moran played Aluma. She's best known as the titular Joni of Joni Loves Chachi and from Happy Days. Ray Walston was core. Walston beat out Ferdy Main, who played Jack Palance's dad in Hawk the Slayer last season, and Henry Gibson, who played the leader of the Illinois Nazis in Blues Brothers last season.
1: I I would have loved to have seen Henry Gibson. Gibson. Yeah with his soft-spoken kind of attitude and he's so small
2: it would feel like he's antagonizing the one where he's like i was a spy on that mission and she's like (laughs) freaking out on him he also plays luther billis in south pacific mr applegate in damn yankees joe dobish in the apartment mad jack duncan in paint your wagon jj singleton in the sting and we saw him last as poop deck pappy in altman's popeye he's mr hand in fast times at ridgemont high And the newspaper vendor who keeps getting blinded and deafened in Johnny Dangerously, which is a joke I really like in that movie.
1: Uh, I like him as Boothby from uh, Star Trek.
2: Yeah, and he might also be best known for a character he played named Armiton, a suspicious anagram for Martian in the movie My Favorite Martian, after having played the lead Martian on the My Favorite Martian TV series in the 60s. Bernard Behrens played Commander Ilvar. He was Robert Lingstrom in The Changeling and The Real Doctor in Resurrection earlier this year. He's also James Gladstone in The Man with Two Brains, and we saw him last as Elegant Doctor in Loving Couples. He's back next in Firefox. Zalman King played Balon. He's the director of a lot of erotic content, including all the Red Shoe Diaries series, uh, starring Fox Mulder and Joey Tribbiani that was adapted into the Showtime series. We mentioned him last for his story credit on Roadie had a story credit on that and he acted here he doesn't act a lot robert england played ranger i just saw one of his early titles toby hooper's eaten alive as the middle of a hooper trilogy at the new beverly last month we'll see him again very soon as harry in dead and buried but he's obviously best known as tim wexler from macgyver episode flames end mm-hmm. quite recently he made an appearance as victor creel in the latest season of stranger things and yes he's freddie krueger but you knew that taffy o'connell played damia she was a ring girl in Rocky 2 and we saw her last season as Jane in New Year's Evil. Sid Haig played Q-Hod, which, I'm assuming, is a reference specifically to Queequeg. Quaig. Yeah. I was um, of that. And in Battle Beyond the Stars, I think we had another Queequeg character because he calls him like a cooner instead of a harpooner. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is Quikwag,
2: my cooner. He's Captain Spaulding in a couple Rob Zombie movies. We had him in Loose Shoes last season and Underground Aces and Choo Choo in the Philly Flash so far this season. He's played a couple bad guys on MacGyver and he's mostly appeared in a lot of schlock horror after the Spaulding character.
3: Didn't he just pass away?
2: Yeah, he did uh, in the last couple of years. We very nearly had him as a guest on the uh, the MacGyver podcast, but it kept we kept not having the right times available and then it just didn't work out. Grace the briskie played Captain Trantor. Trantor comes from The Name of a Planet in Asimov's Foundation series. Previously, she was Lynette Odom in Norma Ray, and we've seen her so far in Private Eyes. Later, she shows up in An Officer and a Gentleman and a handful of David Lynch movies, including Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks, and the movie Firewalk With Me and Inland Empire. She also shows up as Grace Poole in Child's Play 2, Maggie Loon in Ferngully, or Magi Loon. Is it Magi Loon in Ferngully? i don't remember but my favorite credit on her imdb is for playing dotty after whom the asteroid is named in michael bay's armageddon
1: the person that finds her gets the name her right yeah, yes that's right that's right i want to name her dotty after my wife
0: she's a vicious life-sucking bitch from which there is no
2: escape <laughs> <laughs> jack blessing played cause we saw him last as emigrant boy in heaven's gate later he's back for hamburger the motion picture summer school and a lot of voice work, including voices in Five Ghost West, A Goofy Movie, Megamind, Paranorman, and *Leica's Missing Link. Mary Ellen O'Neill played Mitri, she was Mrs. Steiner in Foxes, and Dominici's mother in Battle Creek Brawl, Sister Mary Frances in Minnesota's Seat of Innocence, and this was her last film. Kenny Myers played Dead Spaceship Crew member. This is his first of three acting credits, before House on Sorority Row next season, and then a townsman in Back to the Future 3, much later. He has mostly makeup credits, including earlier for The Island of the Fishmen, Humanoids from the Deep, and Galaxina. He's back next season for Sword and the Sorcerer, Wacko, and Friday the 13th Part 3, and later makeup work in Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, Return of the Living Dead 1 and 2, Heathers, Moonwalker, Star Trek 5, The Final Frontier, and 6, Undiscovered Country, Back to the Future 2 and 3. More recently, he's worked on the Teen Wolf series, Fear the Walking Dead, and Adam McKay's Vice. Brian Wade played Shadow Monster Uncredited. He's back for only one more film, Friday the 13th Part 6. He was a Piranha Sculptor on Piranha 2 and has makeup credits on The Thing, Psycho 2, Last Starfighter, Dreamscape, Terminator, Starman, House, Enemy Mine, Friday the 13th Part 6, Captain EO, Star Trek 4, Harry and the Hendersons, the Beauty and the Beast series, which is all great makeup. The Blob remake, Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, Star Trek 5, The Final Frontier, Back to the Future 3, Gremlins 2, Exorcist 3, Godfather 3, and many others. On the way to his most recent credit on the Disney Plus series Obi Wan.
1: Oh, there's a couple of crossovers there with with Rob Bottin. Yeah, I'm wondering if, if he worked Must with him. Must be part some of the stuff, crew, yeah.
2: It? Bill Paxton was a set dresser on this film. This was his second collaboration with Cameron on the show after Battle Beyond the Stars last season. And David Dakota was a production assistant <laughs> on set. Yeah. This was Dakota's first job in the film industry at the tender age of 18, and he clearly modeled his career in the mold of Corman and Charles Band, who helped him get his start. I think that's everything for Galaxy of Terror. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and letterboxd where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com. We have a Discord. You can join the 24/7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at vintagevideopodcast.com/discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We- that's right, it's a new patron, John Round As a $5 patron of the show, John now has access to 36 full-size 70s reviews and 40 minisodes from 1980 and a hand-in-choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Smokey Bites the Dust, which IMDb describes like so. This movie follows the rivalry between a small-town sheriff and a small-town teenaged thief who steals cars and destroys them with the sheriff's daughter by his side. We leave you now with the trailer for Smokey Bites the Dust, which is basically just
3: they literally redid, super
2: cheap prequel of. But they literally Smokey redid the, the
3: same concept. It's of the like, same
2: story, but a teenager doing it
3: with the with the daughter and everything.
2: Yeah, I I get the impression that someone was pitching it as a prequel to Smokey and the Bandit, and they got shut down. So they were like, "Fine, I'm going to take it to Roger Corman. We're going to make it for six dollars." But uh, yeah, here's the trailer for Smokey Bites the Dust.
0: Keep your mind on the game Homecoming queen Peggy Sue is about to be snatched
3: Roscoe, are you trying
0: to abduct me? Feeling my daughter? And her daddy the sheriff is out for the catch And Smokey bites the dust How long are you planning to hold me against my will? Until you like it What if we don't catch them at all? Make way for the biggest comedy crack-up of the year. Jimmy McNichol shifts
1: into gear that turns the county on its ear. Like this? Oh, yes, yeah, that's very good.
0: Holy go, where no man has gone before. Come back here. Tight spots. Soft shoulders. Ah! Jimmy McNichol takes on the Mounties and leaves a path of destruction
2: through 17 counties. Smokey bites the pasta. Or, I mean, dust. The first comedy made expressly for the insane.
1: You got it! Smokey bites the dust. It could happen
0: to a nicer guy. <laughs>